With the Missouri legislature out on spring break this week, most developments in Governor Eric Greitens' legal odyssey took place in a St. Louis courtroom. His attorneys unsuccessfully sought to move Greitens' felony invasion of privacy trial from May to April. They also asked that St. Louis Circuit Judge Rex Burleson and not a jury decide on the case. Greitens' attorney Ed Dowd explained why they're pursuing that legal option. There's been a lot of publicity by uh, people not even involved in the case with a lot of false allegations. And uh, I think we might be better off with a judge. Still, Attorney General Josh Hawley guaranteed that some news this week would come out of Jefferson City. He announced he was issuing subpoenas in regards to whether Greitens' campaign illegally obtained a fundraising list from the Mission Continues, a veterans charity the governor founded before running for office. Some aspects of our investigation touch on work that are being done or work that is being done by the circuit attorney's office in the city of St. Louis, and we are cooperating and collaborating with her office as is appropriate on these investigatory matters. And I have also said to the circuit attorney that this office stands ready to assist her in her investigations if needed. We are also keeping the House Investigatory Committee apprised of our investigation and of our progress. The Attorney General's announcement comes about as National Democrats are running television ads derisively tying Holly to Greitens. The GOP statewide official is seeking to deprive U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill of a third term, and Democrats near and far believe that Greitens could be politically poisonous to Republican contenders like Holly. So on this edition of Politically Speaking, Joe Manis and Rachel Lipman join me to talk about this week's legal jousting and a closer look at the political pressures facing Republicans. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And... Rachel Lippman. This is the third part of our unofficial miniseries, which uh, John Combest delightfully called as the Greitens Turns. Some of them caught a little race here. I've heard Fifty Shades of Greitens. And then there's also Gritanic, which which is kind of a playoff on the Titanic. Which I think Scott Charton coined, who has been tweeting about this entire situation. Yeah, now Charton is a a consultant who used to be an AP reporter. And a a very good guy. So there's been a lot of legal developments, as there has been in the last two shows we've done about this Gritan situation. Rachel, as I did for the other two episodes... Walk me through what happened this week. So the big announcement came yesterday from Judge Rex Burleson, where he said the trial date will remain in May, starting with jury selection if there is a jury on May 10th. And then the trial will actually begin on May 14th. The last week? The last week of the legislative legislative session, session. for those of you who pay attention to the calendar, which most of you listening to this podcast probably do. Um, The attorneys for Greitens had pushed for this to be sped up, basically saying that um, we know that there's not a lot of evidence in this case. Um, We want to try this sooner. We want to clear the governor's name. But afterwards, Ed Dowd basically said, you know what, we're okay with whatever date we have. Our whole goal from from the time these charges were brought was to uh, get an early trial setting so that we can prove that the governor is innocent of these charges, which he is. And uh, we do have a trial setting on uh, May 14th, and we'll be ready to prove that he's innocent. You made a point that there, uh, there's a House investigation, and the, and the whole state's waiting for an outcome of this. I think May 14th is a good trial setting, and we're, we're happy to do it, and we'll be ready. 
Now, one of the interesting subplots of that was the attorney for the woman at the center of this mm-hmm. did not want the trial moved to April because it interfered with uh, taking care of her kids, mm-hmm. her schooling, all that sort of thing. Does that Should that be a sign that she is going to come and testify in a particularly negative way toward the governor? Or, or... I mean, I think we, we, we kind of had to know that in order for this case to, to happen, that the woman was going to have to participate somehow. What we still don't know is whether she's participating voluntarily or if in, the circuit attorney has subpoenaed her and said, you need to show up. And I'm not going to be the one reading into the fact that, you know, the attorney is saying she will show up as to whether that's like a voluntary, yes, I want to be involved, or this is the circuit attorney knows they can't really make the case without her because she has to prove that it wasn't consensual, that she didn't want to take the photo or didn't know the photo was being taken at the time. So she is a part of it, whether this is a or, you know, she's she's a crucial part of the of proving that a crime did or didn't happen, whether it's a voluntary participation. I don't know. But that wasn't the only thing that happened this week. In the no. Legal arena. So um, it, the, the governor's attorneys um, are kind of putting all these motions out there just to see if they can, you know, derail the case or raise questions or doubt about the case. And, in, in, you know, maybe the minds of people who are following it, the minds of the reporters, who knows. But there's a, a motion pending right now from attorneys for the governor that basically say the grand jury who heard this case case, the the 12 citizens of St. Louis who decided to charge the governor were given the wrong instructions. And basically for a felony invasion of privacy, there are five things that have to happen. There has to be a nude or a semi-nude photo taken without a person's permission in a place where they have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And then for the felony charge, which is what the governor is facing, is it has to be transmitted somehow to where it could be viewed on a computer. And what attorneys for the governor are arguing is basically that the uh, the circuit attorney who presented this case to the grand juror misinstructed them, told them the wrong thing about the law, and led them to <coughs> charge him with a crime that he didn't necessarily commit. Now, we obviously have gotten many questions for this podcast. Most of them have been friendly or informative. This one from Twitter is a little bit more critical of us. It says, you guys need to get an attorney to discuss these issues. Some of the analysis was flat wrong. Don't need a photo to prove the crime. That's from Alicia Puig, who I actually knew in Columbia when I was a reporter. And one of the things that I was really grateful that you did this week, Rachel, was you talked with Washington University law professor Peter Joy, who the last time I checked is a lawyer, by the way. Yes, right? he is. He is. And, and probably a, a pretty renowned, astute lawyer. And, and, and explain, he, runs the criminal, he runs the criminal defense clinic at uh, Washington University. And kind of explain what you were talking with him about. So I kind of wanted to know, not specifically with the uh, Greitens case, but in you know a grand jury case in general, if you're being asked for... Um, to to charge someone with uh, felony invasion of privacy. What's the grand jury going to hear? And there's no real, you hear it a lot of times about jury instructions, and there's no real instruction that you give to the grand jury. Like they can, they can read the law and they can ask questions about the law, but they aren't instructed on like each thing that you have to have. And his point was, no, you don't necessarily need to have the photo at the question to prove the crime, but you got to have more than someone saying, I think a photo might have been taken. Well, I, I think it is unusual if all we have is somebody saying, I think there is, because while that might make probable cause, um, that is not going to be sufficient for proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And uh, in, unless uh, there was a, a time clock running 
where if an indictment didn't happen by a particular date, uh, you know, a prosecutor might believe, well, we could uh, get enough additional evidence before trial, and, and that does happen from time to time. Uh, so uh, that part would be unusual. On the other hand, if there was a witness uh, who said, um, I did see uh, this photo or, or some, you know, something that's an element of the offense, even if you didn't have the photo, uh, that would both be enough for probable cause and it would be enough to go to a jury for a jury to decide. But just saying, I think there is, um, that's, that's, you know, might make the probable cause that is uh, not going to make a beyond reasonable doubt. And what Peter's talking about there are the two different standards of proof that you have to have. As he put it, probable causes, there's some evidence this happened, but beyond a reasonable doubt is the standard that we hear about all the time for jury trials. You've got to have, you know, not no doubt, but, you know, a reasonable person has to say, yes, I believe that this crime occurred. And, and I think that the other important reason why producing the photo may be necessary is it's not out of the realm of possibility that if Greitens did take the photo, how do we know if the woman was actually in a partially nude or nude state? Like, you need a photo to prove that, right? Or you need to have a witness that you believe. I right. mean, the photo makes this case much less circumstantial, much less of a he said, she said. If you have a really good witness or you have, you know, someone who was also in the room with them as this is happening. There is, a, you know, there is a witness that's listed on the grand jury indictment and on some of the discovery documents that we don't know who this is. There's still a, a mystery witness out there that has not yet been identified or we don't necessarily know their connection to the case. So again, we don't necessarily know all of what and all and all of the avenues that the circuit attorney is pursuing in investigating this case. It's not going to be a trial by ambush. You can't have a trial by ambush. But and the photo would certainly be helpful to prove that, yes, this did happen, because otherwise all we have is the woman saying she saw a flash. But as Peter said, it's not 100 percent necessary if you have a very good witness saying, I saw him took this, take this photo, and I knew and he knew that I didn't want this photo taken. So, Rachel, this development literally occurred right before I was about to press publish on this podcast. Uh, Gardner produced a filing, a motion that has a lot of reporters raising their eyebrows right now. Yeah. So this is a motion where kind of two politically connected scandals are starting to weave themselves together, at least according to the prosecutor. There are two big name attorneys in this case, Ed Dowd and Jim Bennett, who are representing the governor as a civilian, Eric Greitens, in his felony invasion of privacy case, in this case that we've been talking so much about. Well, until earlier this month, they were also representing Greitens as Governor Greitens, not as a civilian, in the trial over the use of an application known as Confide, which automatically deletes messages as soon as they are read. It's alleged that they're using it to kind of cover up business. Well, the way that these two come together, well, so the, the problem that prosecutors are saying, the way that these two cases come together is that confide or similar applications like Signal, WhatsApp, other secured messaging devices are the way that the governor allegedly transmitted or may have transmitted the picture that is at the center of this case, this uh, alleged semi-nude photo of his then mistress. Which and, we've been talking about throughout the rest of the show and, and I think in last week's episode too. Continue. Right. The problem is that state law says you cannot 
work in one case and then another case where information you gain in the first case may be useful in the other case. What the prosecutors are saying here is that for months they've been, Dowd and Bennett have been getting information about the way the governor used the Confide app and then may have used that information they gained to help defend him in a case where he may have used the Confide app. How are they going to prove that he used a text erasing app to send this photo? Now, somebody on Twitter said maybe they could look at ISP records or whether he connected to the Confide server at a particular time. But this seems like it's a particularly difficult thing to prove when this app's purpose is erasing things. The only thing I can think, and we've brought this up before, is that there is a witness that nobody quite knows who it is yet. It's an individual listed as JW on all of the uh, disclosure forms that they have to file to say this is the the evidence that we have in this case. Maybe they have this uh, person saying, yes, I have this Confide app and the governor sent me this photo and there would be the transmission. This is complete speculation, as is the you know information about the IP address and using the IP address. The short answer is we don't know, but they're putting it in a motion that it may have happened. Um, the, the direct quote is, I believe, it says on information and belief, which is sort of a standard, you know, we think this is the theory of the case. Defendant Governor Greitens use of confide signal and or other similar applications to engage in criminal behavior is alleged in this indictment, the felony invasion of privacy charge. One of the developments that happened later in the week is Attorney General Josh Hawley spoke to reporters in Jefferson City about an investigation he's launched into The Mission Continues. Now, we've talked about this a couple times on our show, but the bottom line is the attorney general is looking into whether a fundraising list from that charity that Greitens founded before he came into office was somehow obtained illegally or or improperly by the Greitens campaign. This is what uh, the attorney general, Josh Hawley, had to say about this situation. This office has now issued 15 subpoenas in connection with this investigation. We have subpoenaed the mission continues. We have subpoenaed staff, our former staff from the mission continues. We have subpoenaed the Greitens Group. We have subpoenaed staff or former staff from the Greitens Group. We have subpoenaed staff or former staff from the campaign entity, Greitens for Missouri. In addition to these subpoenas and individuals, we have also issued a series of additional subpoenas to individuals whose names and affiliations I cannot disclose without compromising the trajectory of the investigation. Joe, as we were kind of talking about offline, this is not a new controversy for the governor. It actually first popped up in October 2016 during uh, his ultimately successful campaign with Chris Coster. Well, Uh, actually, even earlier than that, because uh, Coster, who was the Democratic nominee for governor, was attacking Greitens initially over the fees he was taking to being one of the top officials at the um, nonprofit. Um, He was his management of it, that sort of thing, before it came out about this fundraising letter. Right. Because what I was talking about was the Associated Press first reported about this particular issue in October 2016. Correct. Correct. And initially, I mean, Greitens was saying that he did not use the anything from Mission Continues to solicit donors. 2017, after he was inaugurated and in office, he eventually did. Now, he was fined $1,000 by the Missouri Ethics Commission, and if you pay it quickly, you only pay one-tenth of the and amount. And don't violate it again, I think, right? So um, he only paid $100. Yes. Now, 
So some had thought, well, okay, that's settled. So this is what's kind of interesting that this has been brought up again because there have been some new questions raised. Actually, uh, some of the current management of Mission Continues has has said that they did not voluntarily give anything to the governor's campaign, so they don't know how it happened. So there's trying to be a little distance. So this sort of resurrects, A, an old political issue. B, it feeds into the image that he has had since before he, well, actually, since during the campaign, that he tends to uh, prefer to not identify his donors, uh, either sets up groups where you don't know who's giving money or how much, um, that there's all the secrecy surrounding his campaign finance. And so this sort of feeds into that. This was, as I said, it was kind of an early topic in 2016, and it's continued now. And Holly, I think one of the reasons that Holly is now uh, looking on it and trying to reassure the public that he's actually looking at it is because Holly has been accused of not taking allegations mm-hmm. against the governor seriously, that in one of the previous investigations on something involving the governor's use of a special uh, telephone app, that uh, he didn't really interview the governor and that the governor's lawyers were there. So there's a lot of uh, accusations against Holly, who is running for the U.S. Senate, that he is... Uh, treating the governor with kid gloves. And that's really what this is feeding into. Well, and it's also um, starting to play in the election, too. I've seen an ad airing a couple of times, which I'm sure many of our listeners have seen, too, where one of the outside groups supporting McCaskill is targeting Hawley for being soft on the governor. It's tying Hawley to Greitens and also implying that because there was uh, campaign finance, um, I think Greitens donated to Hawley, that he isn't going to be, he's not going to, He's not doing his job. But Attorney General Josh Hawley came to the governor's rescue, proclaiming him innocent. The same Josh Hawley who took almost $50,000 in contributions from Governor Greitens. All Missourians should worry, and we should be asking ourselves, is Josh Hawley bought and paid for? So that's, you know, kind of starting to factor into this and and with outside groups hitting Hawley over his relationship with Greitens. Well, and McCaskill's hitting him herself. She had something on Twitter this week. She's a former prosecutor, and she had some stuff where she said, I cannot believe this. And then so she had, you know... Things pointing out about the uh, governor's lawyers being there when Holly was interviewing right. some of the staff, the whole ex- executive privilege thing. So she herself mm-hmm. is starting to, because A, it does two things. B, she, A, she can attack Holly, her, her likely Republican opponent. B, she can bolster her reputation as a prosecutor. He was going to root out public corruption. <laughs> uh, you know, he talked a lot about it. And by the way, his, his buddy, the other outsider, Eric Greitens, did the same thing. The two of them. They were going to ride into Jefferson City and they were going to clean up all that mess up there. All that ugly corruption and all that dirty, nasty stuff that went on with all those terrible politicians of both parties. I just want to point this out. I think that obviously we're talking about Holly's actions on specific issues, which are with, with the Confide app. Uh, investigation and also the investigation the mission continues, which is clearly within the realm of, of criticism. But I do think it's worth noting that the Greitens political team and the Holly political team are totally separate entities. Yes. yes. 
I think it should be noted that one of Holly's main political consultants, James Harris, is also Mike Parsons' main political consultant. Mike Parsons is lieutenant governor. And um, I, I haven't talked to James Harris, but I think that he would be pretty happy if his main client suddenly was elevated to governor, being Mike Parson. I could see a scenario where Holly goes extra hard on the governor because he really doesn't have the same political operation. This is such a fantastically tangled web. Well, at some point, he may feel like he's forced to because if the governor continues to be embattled and if the Democrats appear to be closing in and Hawley's been under pressure from Republicans, especially donors, because they claim that he hasn't been raising enough money or hasn't been this or hasn't been that, um, he's going to feel under pressure to kind of flex his muscles and to show that, yes, I can be tough. Yeah, so this is from an anonymous questioner. How concerned should the governor's team be that three entities, St. Louis Circuit Attorney, State AG, and State House Investigative Committee have reportedly issued subpoenas for documents regarding the mission continues? And by the way, this is a reference to the Kansas City Star article that basically reported what the questioner is talking about. Now, this actually kind of transitions into what you reported this week, Joe, about the investigative committee. Um, I don't know if you have a specific answer to this question, but if this investigative committee, which you profiled, does expand its focus to Michigan Continues, what could that mean for whatever decision they render? Well, I think that, again, what I said earlier is I think this feeds into the longstanding uh, uh, controversy image surrounding the governor as far as being secrecy about his campaign finance. And I want to emphasize to our listeners, many of the governor's toughest critics on this are fellow Republicans. Right. Democrats have been after him, but Republicans in many cases have been more vocal on this. I think that's really important to point out because if you look at kind of the pushback from the pro-Greiton side, the narrative is that this is like a Democratic George Soros plot to um, up, upend a Republican governor. I, I haven't talked to George Soros, so I don't know if that's true or not. But as you just mentioned, some of the toughest critics are Republicans. And they have been tough critics for over a year. So part of the problem is that Greitens has few friends among his own party in Jefferson City. Although you are starting to see some say, you know what, we've got to, you know, circle the wagons on this and, we've you know, defend a Republican governor. Kind of, you know, let's not attack our own party. Let's not eat our own. Yeah, well, that's true. But again, that's basically one Republican faction yeah. mm -hmm. delivering a message to the other Republican faction. Because as Jason pointed out, there are some Republican factions who care less about uh, whether or not Greitens remains governor, as long as there is a Republican governor. Which Parson would be if he's elevated to the so, office. So if 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 you're the governor, I think they, he should be. He probably is concerned about the added sub subpoenas concerning the mission continues because it does indicate that they're broadening the probes beyond the question of what happened in his basement with this woman to how he's been money raising and all this other stuff, as again, which he has been hit at for over a year. Now, a couple things about the uh, panel, the House panel. Uh, the chairman is Jay Barnes, a state rep from Jefferson City, who's a lawyer, pretty well respected, and at times has been a maverick and has stood up against his party uh, on some other issues, which I won't go into. If you want to listen to or read the feature, it is on our website. But the point is, is that Barnes was an early supporter of the governor, so he's not necessarily part of the of the crowd of critics. But 
On the other hand, some of the crowded critics have been pleased with how he's handled stuff so far. So you've got Barnes overseeing this group. Uh, the other six members include a couple other attorneys, including Gina Mitten, who's a state rep and a Democrat from the St. Louis area. You have several members who are current or former members of law enforcement. You have uh, one member of the panel who also runs a consulting firm that deals with mediation and some of these various issues. So you've got people on the committee who are familiar with either the legal issues, the political issues, or the professional issues surrounding this, this case. They, most of them have been, they have been pretty quiet, but Mitten was pretty outspoken before she was named to the committee. Now, the top House Democrat uh, has been a little upset because the Republicans can't hold five of the seven seats. And so some of the Democrats thought that they were going to have at least one more seat that would be more like 4-3 instead of 5-2. But, again, because of uh, Barnes' reputation as a maverick, some of the Democrats are willing to give him a pass because they think he will be um, uh, an honest broker. And that could have actually mattered in this instance because I think as we've talked about before, um, Democrats are not really united about whether they want to see Greitens stay or go. He's useful for him at this point. Um, some yes. of them some of them want to use him as a foil for electoral purposes. Well, especially in the Senate race. Especially in the Senate race. And others are, again, fearful that Parson will be much more effective at passing legislation that is not good for Democratic interests long term. I've, I've tried to hammer this point home many times. It doesn't seem to be breaking through in social <laughs> media land. But it does lead me to my next question from Cindy Ranowski. Wonder how much outside pressure from his donors, being the governor, is being put upon legislature to let this drop, or conversely, to replace him to keep GOP control and minimize the damage he is causing the party. Now, I think that's a difficult question to definitively answer, but it's actually something that I pose to Senator Paul Wieland. He is a Republican from Jefferson County. He is going to be running for re-election in probably one of the more competitive Senate districts. Jefferson County has become more Republican, but as even he will tell me, since he now has a viable Democratic opponent, Robert Butler, it's going to be a pretty competitive race. I asked him what effect he thought the, the governor would have on his on his contest. Now, if the election were going to be held on April 2nd, I'd say, yeah, absolutely. The governor's situation is going to have a big impact on the election. And it doesn't have so much of an impact on um, people that maybe want to vote for me or want to vote for my opponent. But it has an impact on the motivation to get people out of their houses into the voting places. So right now, the electric is the Republican electric is not real energized. They're not real excited about getting out and voting, and I think that would drive down the turnout for the Republicans. And opposed, you know, the Democrats are energized. Now that would be if the election were held April, let's say April second. We've got a long time to go between now and November. Come November, um, this may be a non-issue. I mean, the governor may turn things around. He may be found innocent of everything. And he may be riding high in the polls. Are the governor on the other side of the coin? The governor may not even be around. So um, a lot's got to play out. I'll, I will, but I will tell you, if the election were in April, I would be very concerned. But we've got a long way to go. And in politics, six months is an eternity. I, I will just point out, and this might be editorializing, uh, Senator Wheeland is one of the most candid and entertaining senators that I, I have run across but he's 100% right here, yeah. Joe. I, I think you would agree with that. It, it's too early to say 
how this is going to affect elections when we don't know what the situation is going to be in November. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to be candid, Democrats have had this habit many elections over the last decade of measuring the drapes way too early, and you just don't know what's going to happen. Things can turn on a dime. It could be anything. And or as uh, Senator Whelan pointed out, Greitens may not even be around in November or it, or it may be already resolved. You may have Republicans who are sick of all this and want to push back. Now, on the donor situation, it's rather complicated. Most of Greitens' major donors, although we kept a lot of them secret, but most of his major donors that we know of are not part of the Missouri donor class. They've gotten some, but most of his are from out of state, other parts of the country. In fact, they're more actually many of them were donors to Michigan Continues, which is why <laughs> there's all this uh, focus. So my point is, I'm not sure how much pressure they would have on the General Assembly because most of the his donors have not been donors to Republican members of the state legislature. And that's something that I've always wondered, too, is the fact that, you know, he has this sort of this separate donor class that was, you know, hedge fund, mission continues, his Duke buddies, his SEAL buddies, whatever – that it kind of gave him the, you guys have both said several times, he has no friends in Jefferson City, but that may also be the reason that he's just kind of like, I don't care. I have these people who are going to keep supporting me. I don't need the donors who could be putting pressure on me. We know he reached out after the um, initial story that sparked this whole thing aired. I'm guessing he probably reached out again after the indictment. And I guess we have no real way of knowing whether or not it's going to be impacted. But if that doesn't just kind of help him be like, you know what, I'm going to fight this. I have these donors who aren't going to lead me. I don't depend on the people who could put pressure on me. I'm really glad you made that point because I wanted to put a parallel about why you still see a lot of fervent support for, for Greitens. Because when I covered the Greitens campaign, I saw a lot of people that were not involved in Missouri politics who were very excited. Because before he ran for office, Greitens had cultivated a pretty large following for his Mission Continues work, for his military service, mm-hmm. for his motivational speaking. Whether you like him are dislike him politically. It is undeniable that he had, for many people, a positive impact on their lives, whether it be through his charity work or through his words. So um, during the entire Me Too movement, and I'm not trying to compare these two situations exactly, but I think you'll understand my point after I make this. Um, One of the lead singers of my favorite bands, Brand New, was revealed to have had inappropriate sexual encounters with minors. And this occurred after I'd seen this band six times in concert, had bought all of their albums, and had their songs genuinely affect my life at very various points. So when this news came about, it was shattering to me. And it was a situation where I had to decide, do I still listen to this band anymore after these horrible revelations come about? Or do I try to separate the music from the the person? Mm -hmm. And I've had people tell me that, you know, they are sort of disappointed in this governor for what he did personally for the affair, which he has admitted to, but also believe that he is doing a lot of good work in in Jefferson City and want to see him continue to do that. So my point is, for all the people that Greitens influenced in a positive way, it is sometimes very difficult to take all of that away when a very shattering event like this comes to the forefront. 
But I'm just mentioning this because people who are inside the Missouri political bubble may be wondering, well, why is there so many like Facebook comments supporting him? It must just all be like random bots from Russia, which it might be. But I do think he has a, like a lot of legitimate support out there. Maybe not as high as he had in 2016. Yes, but at the same time, I think we need to note that many of those people um, are not donors in Jeff City, are not players in Jefferson City. So while, and I'm not denigrating anything, but I'm looking at the political reality of it, the point is they may not be able to affect what happens to him. That's my point. In fact, his fate lies with both the judicial system and the legislators that he derided as career politicians. On that note, I want to thank both of you for coming in and analyzing the week's events. We'll likely be back next week for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. Follow Rachel on Twitter at R. Lipman, two P's, two N's. We'll be back another time. Until then, so long. 